Screw it, screw it, we're just gonna talk about Spider-Man. Welcome to Screw It, we're just gonna talk about Spider-Man, the podcast that talks about old Spider-Man comics with your host, Kevin Hines, and your other host, Will Hines. I am the Will Hines portion of that pair. Which makes me the Kevin Hines. Uh, We are two brothers who live on opposite sides of the country, who are also performers at the UCB theaters uh, that are located in New York and L.A., and we're also big time Spider-Man fans. We've been reading these comics since we were uh, just little, little childs since we were one month old. That's right. Uh, the moment we were born, we pushed our parents aside and started reading Spider-Man comics. And we said someday in 43 years or so, let's do a podcast. That's what we said. Yep. And those sentences were mysterious to everybody until about 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, we still waited. We still waited. Uh, that's right. We, we Even though one podcast has existed, we got very excited going, oh, this is probably the thing we were talking about. Yeah. But not yet. Um, and uh, this episode let's, is a special. Let's wait, let's wait till podcasts are more saturated before we launch. Yeah, let's wait till the novelty of this is totally lost. Uh, but as you were about to say, uh, this is a special episode. Uh, we are normally what we do is we cover the original comics by Spider-Man's original creators, uh, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. Uh, but today but, uh, we are not doing that. That's right. What are we doing, Kevin? We're going to cover two uh, arcs uh, that came much later that we think are great. Yeah, we did an episode a while ago where we're doing, let's do our favorite, like, kind of big Spidey stories that, that Steve Ditko did not do, you know, that were not part of the original run. And we had big plans for that first episode. We were going to do, like... Five or six arcs. We did two. Yeah. And had to stop. Yeah. Even when we got to recording, we were like, well, we think we can get three in. And we went over. We went long and only got two in. But one of them was a six issue story. So that's. Yeah, we weren't thinking. So we're going to do another two arcs this episode. Um, Last time we did the um, Craven's Last Hunt. And um, what's the It's the name. The um, what was the name of the other one we did? The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man. Yeah. Oh, that was just one issue. That was um, half an issue. <laughs> so really, really, we should have been able to fit more in. But that was a jam-packed half issue. Jam-packed. So now we're doing uh, two other arcs. We're going to do Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut from 1982. And then um, by uh, Roger Stern and John Romita. And then we're going to do Unscheduled Stop by Mark Wade. And I forget the artist because I am a jerk. Uh, Marcos Martin, the person who did the eight, issue 800 of Amazing Spider-Man. Ooh, God, he, he's really good. Yeah. Um, on Schedule Stop is the worst title, I think, for that particular... I think it's a bad title for that issue. Yeah, Mark Wade, a very talented comic book writer who's had a very good career in comic books. It all ends today when Will rips apart the title he gave his comic. Once I, mean, I really... It might have I been like, an editor who titled it, I guess, but Mark Wade's taken the brunt of the damage for this. It's on Wade. Once I once I lay waste to how dumb that title is, Mark Wade's not going to recover. No, it's a shame because he's still turning out such great comics, and it'll be sad to see those stop. But did he he'll write? See King- that, he'll see he that write- it has to end. Did he write Kingdom Come? Yeah, he did Kingdom Come. He did an amazing uh, uh, run on the Flash that a lot of people hold up as the best run on the Flash. Uh, he did a great run on Captain America. A couple great runs, maybe three great runs on Captain America. He did an amazing uh, Daredevil run recently. Uh, yeah, he's just, you know, he, he did a great Archie run, too. Oh, really? Modern Archie or like old school Archie? Uh, modern Archie. They sort of revamped it a little bit, tried to modernize it. And Mark Wade was a writer and it was really enjoyable. Well, it all ends today. Good job, yeah. Mark Wade. But your career is over once I criticize this title. In a way, I'm glad we waited this long because it was nice that he got such a good career before you destroyed him. Yeah, I hope he appreciates that. The issue, by the way, that we're talking about is awesome. The story is great. <laughs> uh, there's no other faults with this story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really tremendous story, but that title, his career is um, over. But yeah. we're, gonna, we're, we're coming off together. of doing the 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 Master Planner saga, which is one of our, our not one of our, our favorite Spider-Man story. And so we just needed this. We need to take a break from Ditko just to breathe before we go into Ditko's last five issues. Yeah, so this is just this is for us to emotionally collect ourselves. We were spent. Yeah. And then after this, we'll go back to the Ditko Lee issues. There's, uh, again, I think there's five more, four more? Five left. Five left. Then we're going to do a couple more episodes after that. And that'll be the end of this podcast, this season? We don't know. It's either this season or this podcast, or maybe all podcasts. 
It might end podcasts. Yeah. Uh, well, first we'll destroy Mark Wade and then podcasting as a medium. <laughs> I got to tell Scott Ackerman, he was a guest on our show and now we're going to destroy one of the means of his livelihood. Ugh, he's going to be, he's going to be a little irritated. He will be irritated. Yeah. He'll yeah. get it, but he'll be irritated. Oh no, he'll be on board, but he'll be testy. Yeah. Um, so because it's a special episode, a lot of our segments that are uh, huge favorites with our fans, we're not gonna be able to do like what's happening in the Marvel universe, mm-hmm. uh, Spider-Man mm-hmm. news or podcast news. None of that's necessary. We're just going to launch right into the issues. Yeah, just brace yourself. No segments. Yeah. So um, let's start with the first one, Kevin. First, The first arc we're doing is, this is a very famous Spider-Man story. I see this one listed a lot as like people's favorite one ever. This is sort of a classic, I would say. Yeah, uh, it was on our short list to do the last time we did this episode. It just uh, got pushed off by our two personal favorites. But yeah, nothing can stop the juggernaut. Other than the kid who collects Spider-Man is probably the story Roger Stern is most known for in Spider-Man. It is a two-issue story that came out in 1982. Roger Stern is the writer. John Romita Jr. is the penciler. Yep. And Uh, um, it's issues 229 and 230. And this is from when, Kevin, this is from when you and I were collecting, I believe, or at least, or maybe right before. Yeah, I feel like for me, at least it was right before. It's 82. What'd you say it was? 80, 82. 82. Because I would have been seven. Okay, yeah. So I wasn't I this, buying anything yet. Yeah, this might have been right before. Um, but I, I was like 12 years old when this came out. And this might be the kind of thing that I would have picked up at 7-Eleven or something. Yeah, I, I, it definitely, it's, this is right around Hobgoblin era, Black Cat. So this stuff is very this familiar. Is the trappings are very familiar. Just like how uh, when you grow up, you get very, if you're a fan of Saturday Night Live, you're probably a fan of whatever cast was around when you were like 13 or 14 or something like that. Like that's when you get like attached to that show. Yeah. The comics, the comics that are around when you're like 13 years old are, are often the ones that you're like just emotionally wedded to. And this is the era of Marvel Comics, the Jim Shooter era that I am like, this is my era or, you know, that, that's what I feel like. Yeah, I feel the same way because a lot of the Spider-Man trappings is his apartment, uh, like all the supporting cast, which was, you know, largely derived from the Ditko Stanley stuff. But with a few additions, definitely felt like, oh, this is what Spider-Man is going to be like for the rest of my life is what I decided. Yeah, uh, it's funny, like um, this came out in 82, so it's 20 years after the debut of Spider-Man, but... Spider-Man was such a fixed institution by the time the story came out. Like, it's weird to think that it was only 20 years. I mean, like, like another 30 years have gone by since this story came out. Yeah. Uh, this story is, I guess, older than Ditko's stories were for when the story. Uh, yeah. That sentence made sense. Yeah, that's crazy to think about. It's, I mean, we're old is basically what we're saying. We're old. But also, this is just like... Spider-Man was still young-ish. I mean, like when I was reading this issue, there are so many Ditko things still in play. But then I was like, well, it's only been like, you know, a couple cycles. You know, it's only been a, a it hadn't been that that long since Ditko, really. Yeah, it's amazing to think that when we were reading Marvel and Marvel felt like such an institution that Marvel was still so new. Third third generation, basically, like. There was like the Stanley generation of the 60s and then the Roy Thomas, Jim Starlin generation, you know, Jerry Conway. And then there's these guys, the kids. These are like the people who were kids in the 60s are are now taking the reins. Like Image Comics, which is uh, the book that uh, the the comic company that was started by Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Eric Larson, Rob Liefeld, and a few other great artists from Marvel started in 92. And so that comic book company is now what is that 10 28 years old mm-hmm. but it's 10 years from existing when this comic comes out uh so that's what marvel would have been like though a little bit it's like that new like image still feels like the new company to me it's like oh, yeah, there's marvel right. there's and then there's like some mainstays like dark horse of course and then there's like also image sort of the new big company right uh and marvel still was this new big company next to dc this like juggernaut that had still existed and wasn't probably as I don't know how I don't know how popular it was compared to Marvel at that era. I don't know either. Um, at some point, Marvel passes DC uh, in sales and and popularity, at least as comic books, not necessarily yeah. in the public knowledge. And I don't know when that was. 
Well, I bet you the X-Men had a lot to do with that. And the X-Men are in full, uh, full swing here by 1982. Like you've got, you know, you've got your Chris Claremont, John Byrne X-Men have come and gone, I think, or they're about to go like, so you got like Wolverine and yeah. Colossus and Storm and those guys. And I think those X-Men comics were huge. Yeah. I mean, they were bigger than anything that Marvel had done other than Spider-Man probably. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but I bet you in the public side, cause in 1982, you've got, you've had two Superman movies. There's whispers of a Batman movie coming and Marvel hasn't like penetrated and, any of that yet. And the Batman TV show, even as different as it was from the comics made Batman just a known quantity as, and the super friends cartoon can't be. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. Uh, super friends for me was like a huge introduction to the entire DC universe. Yeah, me too. Um, of course you have the Spider-Man Saturday morning cartoon had already happened or it might've been concurrent with this. Um, the, which the, uh, one of them was probably yes. Amazing friends. The, the second Spider-Man. Cartoon. Yeah. Amazing friends, which was the third. Oh, it was the third? Yeah, it sort of was right on the heels of another one. Oh, I, I don't even know about that other so one. So there was there was the the original one uh, that was originally done by like Baskey and and some other people that was sort of cool. Uh, and then there was basically same style as the Amazing Friends, just without the Amazing Friends. Oh, and then they added the yeah. I don't know if they added it or if it was like made concurrently. It, it's it's confusing. Whenever I've tried to read up on it, it feels like. They made this one cartoon and then decided, oh, this isn't good enough and sort of relaunched it as the Amazing Friends. Okay. Um, and that one is pretty popular, at least with kids uh, my age. My my anecdotal feeling when I was reading Marvel Comics is that Marvel was the number one comics company in terms of critical acclaim and popularity amongst people who read comics. But that DC, by being part of like Time Warner, was like a media giant. When did the crisis happen? Uh, right around here, or maybe like two years later. So I feel like at that point, Crisis seemed to be a little bit like DC tried to regroup itself to face off against Marvel better. Yeah. So maybe right. at this point, Marvel was doing better. X-Men pushed them ahead and, and DC was like, our books are too complicated. We need to simplify and steal John Byrne. Yeah. Frank Miller's Daredevil was going on at this time. Like Marvel was, this is a huge period for Marvel. Secret Wars is like two years away, which even though that comic is kind of hokey, was like a huge event and people still have a lot of affection for Secret Wars. And it's right around here where Stern starts doing his Avengers run, which is great. And Simonson does his Thor run, which is great. And yeah, Beta Ray Bill's about to show up. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff. Christopher Priest starts writing soon, right? As Jim Osley, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Peter Before David he- isn't too far off into the future. Yeah, we're heading into like a really cool generation of... Marvel Comics. And John Byrne, like you say, his Fantastic Four run is going on starting yeah. like now. Uh, Peter Parker, uh, rather Power Pack is coming and that you really changed the face of comics. <laughs> I love Power Pack. I love Power Pack too, but uh, <laughs> I yeah. like to overstate their importance. <laughs> um, all right, let's get into it. So um, I will say this story features a character that I have really no attachment to and very little knowledge of, which is Madam Web. Me either. I, when, when I first saw her, I was like, is this Arachnid from the Broadway show? Uh, I know Madam Web from more to the handful of Fox Spider-Man cartoons I watched uh, because I think she was sort of gone by the time we were reading. But she was a pretty big fixture, I think, there for a little bit. Madam Web is sort of a psychic character that deals with Spider-Man a little bit. Um, Yeah, I I, I don't know a lot about her, but she's a central figure in this comic book. So, Kev, what's the overall story here? And why do you think this story is so popular? So the overall story is pretty simple. It's uh, uh, the juggernaut is coming into New York City and there's nobody around to stop him except for Spider-Man. The juggernaut is an X-Men foe. So he's used to taking on a team of super powerful mutants. And now he's facing off against just Spider-Man and he way overpowers Spider-Man. And what makes the story great, and I think a lot of the best Marvel stories and superhero stories are, it's just like, oh, the superhero can't win this fight, but he can't give up either. So watching Spider-Man basically... Try to do the impossible. Yeah, it's almost like um, it's almost just like a little puzzle. It's like, well, you're not stronger than this guy, and your webs don't hold him, and he, you know, he's just this inexorable force that marches forward. What do you do? It's just sort of like a little conundrum that you, the reader, are sort of like, well, I wonder how he's going to figure it out, right? Yeah, and so it's basically just two issues of Spider-Man getting his butt handed to him until he finds a way to stop the Juggernaut, who is unstoppable. 
So it's kind of like a very clean, simple story, right? A lot of Marvel comics, they're sort of like your main action line and then your soap opera subplot and then a foreshadowing of the next villain, you know, and a crossover with some other hero. And then some of these big stories are just like we clear the decks. It's just a little simple good guy versus bad guy slugfest. And sometimes those can be just surprisingly satisfying. And other than a few nods to the supporting cast, there's not much ongoing Spider-Man stuff here. It's also helped that Roger Stern is just a great writer. The dialogue just sings. Uh, And John Romita Jr., for my money, is probably the second best Spider-Man artist after Ditko. Wow. Uh, I think he's better than Romita Sr., and that's probably very controversial. There's something, the energy of a John Romita Jr., and he also goes through numerous styles while well, he's he's done so many spider-man comics at this point and his later style i love almost as much as this style but this is both modern like john romita jr uh, john romita senior's work but also sort of got the energy and uh excitement a little bit of the ditko art in there too i see what you're saying john romita senior and he's the artist who takes over after steve ditko who of course is an amazing artist and and can't be understated how important he was to the spider-man popularity yeah, he, and mythos He's the classic, um, uh, but John Romita Sr. is very like uh, almost like a draftsman like accuracy, like everything's very precise and clean, and uh, which is very cool looking. But Romita Jr., what you're saying, I think you're right, is more dynamic and fluid, and it feels a little more emotionally expressive. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously building off. He has a lot of what his father had, and he's sort of bringing it, and he's building off of it. He's got the advantage of he learned from his father that John Romita Sr. didn't have. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see what you're saying though. There's a little more Ditko-y feeling in these, in these drawings. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so let's zip through this comic, talk a little bit about some of just the great moments that we love. I think the title is great. What do you think about the title, Title Killer? This is a great title. Mark Wade could take a page from, from, uh, Roger Stern in terms of titling stories. Nothing can stop the juggernaut. Uh, it's great. It's uh, simple. Gets to the point. It's what happens. It's accurate. Uh, and it starts with this a little dream sequence that Madam Web's having of a monster attacking her while Spider-Man tries to stop it. It's a very fun dream sequence. Spider-Man's costume's a little different. He's got toes. Um, yeah. Uh, and we don't really quite know what's going on at this moment, particularly as Will and I aren't super familiar with Madam Web. Uh, but it ends with her waking up being like, oh, somebody's coming to kill me. Yeah, Madam Web's a good guy. She's got psychic power. She is in her life support system which looks like a big spider with a bunch of wires coming out of it that look like a web and she's at a dream that she knows she's gonna die or be 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 yeah be attacked or something and so she calls her friend peter parker and she knows spider-man's secret identity because of her secret powers which is wild yeah uh, and she just sort of, yeah she sort of just calls peter his phone rings and it's spider-man i need your help bottom of uh, page uh three um the that left panel of the bottom row, the caption is seconds later in a third floor apartment in Manhattan's Chelsea district. So Parker was living in Chelsea, which is like fancy, Peter. Was it fancy in 82? I don't know, but it's fancy now. And it makes me think he'd be a fan of the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater because. Uh, um, Peter Parker would definitely take improv classes if he 20, didn't have spider powers. Like 22 years after this story, an improv theater opens up a couple blocks away from where Peter's living. Yeah, I think this is before. I think this is uh, Chelsea looks nice in the drawing, but I bet Chelsea was a not quite as nice neighborhood back then. But I really don't know. I don't know my New York history well enough. Um, Yeah, it's probably Chelsea was always pretty nice, I think. But it was I think it was more like, oh, there's a lot of industrial buildings here. And so there's not as many residences and it's a little bit away from the subway, blah, blah, blah. You know, before Manhattan became totally saturated, it it was probably it was probably reasonable to think that a guy could be slumming it in Chelsea. Yeah, I mean, he. He has a bad apartment at this time. I don't think we really get into it in this story, but uh, he, you know, he lives poor, cheaply. Oh, yeah. I remember this in his living room. He's got that like wooden that like a big wooden spool that he would use for like industrial cables is his coffee table. I love things like that. Yeah, I, I, I have vivid memories of that. I remember thinking like, oh, I want to have an apartment like that someday. And lots of people have tables or had tables like that. I think through the time I think it was probably just like oh, this is what kids have. It's fun. Do you think Peter Parker is a fan of the music of the Talking Heads or the art of Basquiat? Because that's also sort of contemporary to early 80s. Or Blondie. You know what I mean? Also, they might be giants is starting up somewhere in New York City right now. I'm surprised they don't show up in this issue. Well, since Peter was sort of born out of Stan Lee's mind, I assume he's always about five years behind 
Yeah. <laughs> what's actually popular. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's a 20 something. So, mm-hmm. and he's a nerd. Yeah. So you can kind of figure out what he'd be into. Okay. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a slow start r- relative to how much fun the action is. Uh, just, just a little bit of setup before we get going. Like there's Madam Webb's dream. Uh, and then we got to figure out, we have to set the juggernaut in motion. And so there's a little bit of exposition with that. Yeah, we see that the juggernaut and his colleague, Black Tom Cassidy, decide that Madam Webb's psychic powers maybe could help them defeat the X-Men. So he sends the juggernaut off to get Madam Webb. And he just jumps off a boat and starts walking. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, I like that his name, that this guy's name is Black Tom and not Blackie, which I think would be a more Ditko Lee name. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. He kind of looks like the guys who were named Blackie in the old Ditko, Ditko stuff. Yeah, and I don't know a ton about Black Tom Cassidy. Uh, you might know more from... X-Men comics of that time. I don't remember him. Uh, but yeah, he's either a brother or a good friend of the juggernaut. It's funny. Like all I remember about the X-Men comic or the main thing I remember about the X-Men comics really isn't, aren't the villains other than Magneto. I just remember like this, the, the, the drama, you know, like Colossus and Kitty Pride dating. Like just, <laughs> Colossus uh, and Jean Grey. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Kitty uh, Pride was a, a young child at that time. My apologies, uh, but just There's like not a the, Ned Leeds Betty Brant situation going on here. Didn't they date at some point though? Later, yeah. I don't think so. Um, well, they would have angsty conversations about like, what are we doing with our lives? I just remember Colossus and Kitty Pride sort of confiding in each other. Kitty Pride and Colossus dated. You said Cyclops. Yeah. I thought. Oh, I meant to say Colossus and um, Kitty Pride. Yes, they dated. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, Anyway, th- those kind of things is all I remember. Or Storm being like going back to her homeland and feeling torn. Like just the angst. That's what I remember from the X-Men. I almost forget the, forget about the battles. I, I do remember a, a Juggernaut story. It might have been from Marvel Team Up uh, where Black Tom Cassidy gets the Juggernaut powers or gets half the Juggernaut powers at some point. Uh, mm-hmm. I have vague memories of that. Can Juggernaut just breathe underwater? Yeah, I, that surprises me too. I don't, I didn't think so, but uh, based on this, yes. <laughs> He's got no problem just like walking along the bottom of the East River. Or he can hold his breath far long enough to make it. I like that idea better. Uh, we have a little interlude here. So the Juggernaut's on his way to get Madam Web, and the little, there's a little interlude in the Daily Bugle where we see what the current incarnation of the Daily Bugle is, and it's a way more realistic and human place than it was in Ditko's era. And there's also just more people there. It looks like a real newspaper. There's like just a floor full of people. You got Robbie Robertson running the show and he is like a reasonable human being and not an insane cartoon like J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rob, yeah, Robbie runs a newspaper like a, an adult should. <laughs> um, I love Robbie Robertson and I love his pipe. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's also fun because that uh, um, I think Robbie knows that Peter Parker Spider-Man, right? That's always been a subtle hinted at thing, but never quite said. They've never hinted at it, but like Robbie's kind of let him know that he's picked up on it, I think. Yeah. And uh, but another interesting thing here is Betty Brant comes back. Yeah. uh, Betty Brant comes back. She has taken some time away to because I guess her marriage to Ned Leeds, the child stealer, uh, (laughs) has had some bumps. And she's coming back to see if her job being the uh, secretary for Joe Robertson is still available. And it is. Uh, Oh, is his name Joe Robertson and Isn't not it, Robbie? I, I, thought, I thought Robbie was just his nickname. Oh, okay. I might be wrong. I can't remember. Um, I'm always so used to alliteration and comic book character names that I, I sort of <laughs> default to that, but I, I, I could easily be wrong. I get facts wrong all the time. Yeah. Okay, so, but that's kind of all we get We don't these. do this podcast because we know what we're talking about. We have no idea. Um, so then we get into it, and and the the juggernaut. So it's it's almost it feels like a zombie story in a weird way. Like the bad guy is just sort of mindlessly plotting forward. I mean, the juggernaut is just bored. He'd be like, well, I'll rather just like walk directly across a busy street and through a building rather than alter my path even 10 degrees. Yeah, he's so powerful. He doesn't see any reason. I mean, this is still the city where the Avengers live. It's not the greatest move out of his, but he decides instead of just sort of like walking there, I'm going to take a straight line, go through anything that gets in my way, leaving just a a wave of destruction. Uh, there's also a fun sequence that Madam Web keeps calling Peter wherever he is. So he gets a phone call at the Daily Bugle. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so at the Bugle, the, the phone rings. And they're like, Peter, it's for you. And it's Madam Web going, the juggernaut's here. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She always knows where he is. So even though we're before cell phones, Madam Web doesn't need cell phones because she always knows where the person is. Yeah. And there's like, uh, look on page nine, Will, if you see, like, there's this great shot of Spider-Man swinging off in the Daily Bugle sign. Oh, yeah. I love that. I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, John Romita Jr. does stuff like that that just is so beautiful. It's a, yeah, that's a great panel. Um, at the bottom of page 10, the last panel, he's got a, as um, Juggernaut's walking through Wall Street, that's an accurate picture of the New York Stock Exchange with the statue of George Washington out front and the big American flag. It's kind of nice that he got that uh, exactly right. Yeah. Um, and Spider-Man is basically chasing after the wake of the Juggernaut at that point. And then he sees him. He spots him. Uh, they, I don't think he's uh, ever seen him before because he doesn't uh, know much about him. Um. I guess that's part of the fun here is he has to kind of test stuff out. Like he, he doesn't totally know what will work or not. Like he just tries, he just tries kicking him in the back initially and it doesn't work. Yeah. Like the juggernaut doesn't even seem to notice. It's kind of amazing that the story works because it could be boring, right? I mean, like the juggernaut is powerful, but he's also very simple. He's just a strong dude. Right. And Spider-Man has fought like the Hulk before he's fought big, strong guys. So I guess that's a testament to Roger Stern that you have to sort of like kind of like dole out the different strategies that Spider-Man says, you know, you can't you could resolve this fast, I guess, you know, like, yeah, um, I really love page 14, just like the first panel with all the Spidey just trying to attack him from every which way. And it's drawn just like a million Spideys attacking Juggernaut. That's kind of a cool draw. Yeah. And that's maybe the first time where the Juggernaut really gets really annoyed. At that point, Spider-Man has just like uh, thrown webs at him and made him fall into a hole. Uh, none of that slowed him down even a little bit. And that's Spider-Man sort of climbing all over him, just like poking at him. Like a gnat. Juggernaut is uh, annoyed. Yeah, and he just walks through a building to shake Spider-Man off. Yeah, he walks through a building, comes out one side without Spider-Man on him. Uh, very effective. And he just goes, blasted nuisance. They also do a nice little bit of work to explain why... The other heroes don't come in here. Like usually the villain in the Marvel universe, the villains pair off with an appropriately powered hero. Yeah. Like the event, if it's like some huge giant from another planet, that's fantastic for time or Avengers time. And Spidey handles more like mafia level thugs kind of. Uh, but so we do a little bit of work here to explain that every, basically everybody's out of town, right? Yeah. The X-Men aren't around. The Avengers and Fantastic Four are unreachable as well. I mean, the Avengers protect the world. The Fantastic Four travel into other dimensions. It's very believable. You'd think the X-Men would come running. This is their guy, but they they're also care. not reachable. Well, they're up, their heads, you know, they're going through a lot of in, internal drama up in Westchester County. You know what I mean? They're probably in the danger room learning how to deal with true love. Yeah, they don't fight villains anymore. They just, they fight uh, their own personal demons. Yeah, sense of identity and and can you trust your friends? Um. Uh, so the, but then, you know what I like, if, if I can cut to the end of this issue. Sure. Um, the, I, I, I want to talk about one thing before you get to that, then Spider-Man gets a few more phone calls when he gets knocked into the building, the phone rings. Oh yeah. That's really uh, fun. That's Madam Webb saying it's something he, the, he's powered by something known as Sidorak, which is a word Spider-Man's heard Dr. Strange say. So he goes to visit Dr. Strange, who's also out, but his, uh, manservant Wong is around. So he talks to him for a bit and then the phone rings and spider makes a little joke. Uh, it's probably for me. My answering service isn't to be believed. <laughs> um, so he talks to Man Web, and he's basically at this point, Spider-Man knows it's up to me. Right. It's just him, and of course, Spidey never quits. Um, but they, there's a nice little turn here at the end of the issue, which is like the Juggernaut kind of wins. He gets Madam Web. Yes, he reaches Madam Web. Spider-Man slows him down marginally, but can't stop him. Uh, the Juggernaut gets the Meta Web and pulls her out of her life support chair. Which um, puts her on death's door. And so he gives up. He just drops her kind of convulsing body on the floor and walks away being like, well, this was for nothing. Yeah, Juggernaut's like, oh, she's going to die if she's not in her chair. Then I don't need her. She won't help me in Black Tom. So I'm out of here. Just walks away. Spider-Man has to stay and kind of perform CPR to keep her alive till the paramedics arrive and this does a nice little thing story-wise and i think this might be why this story is remembered is it turns from a sort of physical challenge into an emotional one it's like spidey is so like distraught at how callous juggernaut was like he 
puts her in life's danger and then just tosses her aside. Well, first of all, Juggernaut wins. Basically, he like wins this portion of the fight. Um, Spider-Man doesn't stop him. But then Spidey is just like, oh, my God, what, what a monster you are. And uh, and I've and I've I'm going to be responsible for this woman's death. And it kind of activates Spidey's uh, guilt complex, which is uh, always a good storytelling technique for Spidey. Yeah. I mean, he even starts talking about responsibility again uh, at this point. Uh, maybe another point in the story. Um, but yeah, he 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 was asked to save her and he failed. So this is kind of like a and it's where Madame Webb kind of looks Aunt May-ish just in that she's sort of an elderly, thin, gray haired woman. Yes. Um, and so it's kind of like an Aunt May analog is almost dead. And so, like, you don't want to mess around with gray haired old ladies and Spider-Man. You're getting to some Freudian stuff here. You're going to unleash maximum Spidey. Yeah. The last two panels, he says, I'm going to find a way to stop that unstoppable human tank or die trying. Yeah, so, so I think like that kind of big dramatic ending is sort of what elevates this from just like a from a merely good comic. Yeah, I mean, and he does a good job just establishing how powerful the juggernaut is by his kind of ignoring of the police, Spider-Man and buildings. So then we head into part two. And so now like juggernaut's just going home. Spidey could just like not do anything and he'll walk away. But now and now it's like personal, basically. Yeah, I mean, Juggernaut's still a criminal. He hurt somebody and he's done a lot of damage. He deserves to go to jail at the very least. Yeah. So we go through, um, just the scale goes up. Oh, and also the Spidey runs out of web fluid at one point. He, he starts losing his weapons. Uh, during the second issue. Yes. He starts losing his, uh, he runs it. He, cause he kind of loads all his webbing on him and he's been shooting around all through the city, chasing this guy and just trying everything. So yeah, he goes through all his webbing eventually. I was going to kind of move through the second issue sort of quickly, Kevin. Are there other, other, uh, I mean, just lots of cool little moments. This is a great issue. This issue is just great fun seeing all the different things Spider-Man tries. Like he shoots girders at, uh, the juggernaut and that fails. He knocks in, uh, uh, a broken down building on top of the juggernaut and that fails. He throws a wrecking ball at the juggernaut. Nothing happens. Uh, it's fun watching all that stuff happens. Uh, so I like all that aspect. This issue also has a little J. Jonah Jameson for Will Hines. Kept, kept me interested. Yeah. Uh, I like Jameson being in there. And he still seems crazy. He still seems, I mean, he's more realistic than when we last saw him. Yeah. But uh, with uh, with Robbie at his side, he's he's a little more, uh, the Daily Bugle seems like it should be in business. <laughs> I mean, he's where he always should have been. He should be the owner of a newspaper who's sort of a blowhard and obnoxious and sort of spouting his opinion that no one cares about. But the person who can actually run the paper well does is doing, that. The, is doing the day to day. Yeah. Um, another thing that I love, and I, I think another uh, page 13, Spidey hurls a tanker full of gasoline at the juggernaut and explodes it. And that's like just a it feels huge when that happens. I mean, again, here's where this art is just so good because it, they take that moment to give. This doesn't have a ton of splash pages. There's a lot of panels throughout this story. John Romita mm-hmm. generally packs a lot of story in, mm-hmm. but that is almost a full page panel of an explosion, really showing how big an explosion is. I almost feel like you read so many comics and see so many action movies, and a, a gas tanker exploding feels like, yeah. Uh, but this pay- panel reminds you, it's like, no, this is an enormous amount of damage they just threw at the juggernaut. Yeah, I think like it's fun when a story heightens to to a place you didn't think it would go, at least you know, in terms of emotion or like scale or something like that. You're like, well, I didn't think we were going here. And this tanker truck exploding kind of has that feeling. It's like, oh, this is like Spuddy's basically blowing up a whole city block here to try to stop this guy. Uh, and then it has no effect on him. Yeah. It's also great. The after panels showing the fire blazing looks beautiful. Yeah, the art's really good. The coloring is very 80s Marvel Comics coloring to me, but I love that. I mean that as a compliment. Uh, I'm just emotionally attached to it. Like I love this whole look is like is like my favorite. You know, yeah. th- this to this to me is comics. Like when this I think is, of comics, this is what comes to mind. This is basically as advanced as coloring gets prior to like digital uh, coloring that kind of takes over later on. So it's just like, it's beautiful. Um, uh, so we're, uh, and then in the climax, should we say how Spidey wins? Spidey yeah, wins. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sorry guys, if you, if you're, if you don't want us to spoil comics, I don't know why you've been listening all this time. <laughs> uh, we just kind of churl through the plots and tell you exactly what happens. But yeah, Spider-Man uh, wins this battle and sort of lucks into it. Yeah. It's like, 
maybe the emotional victory is just that he won't give up. Um, uh, right, right before Spidey wins, Spidey is clinging to the juggernaut, covering up his eyes in some desperate attempt to just like blind him. And the juggernaut just pounding at Spidey on his back. I'm sort of surprised Spidey doesn't die, right? Like, yeah, I mean, Spider-Man doesn't die easily. I mean, he's taking a ton of abuse in, the, in those panels. The juggernaut is just punching, not full force because he can't quite pull his arm all the way back. But I mean, he's doing a lot of damage to Spider-Man who, like a spider, is just sort of clinging to him. He does look very spidery, um, but then the juggernaut sort of walks into a big floor of wet cement, a foundation that's just been set. Yeah, a foundation's been laid for a new building, and the juggernaut starts sinking into it. Spider-Man lets us know that we're so close to the water that that foundation could be 40 feet deep. Um, juggernaut is sinking into it. It's a very horrific-looking uh, image. Yeah, so the juggernaut must be able to breathe. Uh, yeah, he, he doesn't he would need, die here. <laughs> he doesn't need air, I guess, from his jewel or whatever. Yeah, but it's a really horrific looking, like it's kind of the buried alive image. Is like, oof, it's kind of gruesome. Yeah, and the Juggernaut's basically like, I'll get out of here eventually. And Spider Man's like, Yeah, probably, but hopefully we can figure out what to do with you by the time that happens. We cut back to the bugle, and Peter's got some pictures of it. Um. There's a little bit of subplot going on. Yeah, there's a fun little Spider-Man photographer subplot that he's got this competition now at the Bugle, Lance Bannon, who's getting all the gigs. And Lance Bannon's an actual photographer who's doing the work and not just taping his camera to the side of a building. Right. But every so once in a while, are- Spider-Man gets photos because he's there. And Lance Bannon comes back and says, I couldn't get close enough to get any photos. And Spider-Man accidentally triggered his camera. So he took a bunch of photos through his costume. And then the um, last page of this comic is like really kind of a creepy end. It's Black Tom with binoculars looking at the cement field, waiting for Juggernaut to kind of break out of it with his powers, but he doesn't. And it's just, he's stuck there. And the Juggernaut might not come back out of that until the Marvel team-up story that I'm remembering, which was like the end of Marvel team-up, 149, 150. That might not be true. Um, but it's the, just, um, it's but the somehow- Juggernaut is in like one of the last Spider-Man Marvel team-up stories. It's it's interesting, like, um, it's a little bit arbitrary, I think. Like, if Juggernaut can walk out of a fire, walk under a river, survive a building collapsing on him, I feel like if he burst out of that cement, it it wouldn't, like, seem crazy to me. Um, but I guess I guess it's just sort of like... It, to Black Tom either, he's waiting for it to happen. But I guess it just feels like Spider-Man earned it or something like that. Yeah, um, I mean, you can definitely come up with reasons why this would stop him. You know, he doesn't have the, he can't just get moving. Like if he, he could walk through a cement block, no problem. But he can't get moving, then, what, you know, he's stuck, you know? I, I guess what I admire about it is, um, is that uh, Roger Stern has a good sense over like that this will feel earned and correct. Like he knew how to manage the challenge of Spidey versus the Juggernaut as a story. Like the execution is really good. And he did it in a way that sort of doesn't diminish the Juggernaut, right? I think a downside to this is sometimes what they'll do in stories is have a comic character fight off against a threat to prove how powerful that character is. Yeah. So it'll be like, oh, you think this character, you think this character is strong? We'll prove it. He's going to beat up the Hulk. And the danger of that is like, oh, now the Hulk doesn't seem as strong. Right. So the, the Juggernaut's big thing is he's unstoppable. But nothing here makes him seem not unstoppable. It just seems like he has been really, really, really slowed down. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough balance. But uh, they, like, Roger Stern does it. And I guess that's one of the reasons why that story is so beloved. Um, let's move on to our other one. Yes. So this is a much more modern comic uh, that Mark Wade did with Marcos Martin on the art. This came out in 2009. Uh, this is issues 578 and 579 of The Amazing Spider-Man. And so this Spider-Man has been through a lot at this point. Uh, at this point, Spider-Man has been married to Mary Jane, and that has been sort of undone in the comics. So mm-hmm. he's no longer married and never was married, in fact. Uh, he's gone through the Civil War storyline where his identity was made public to everyone, and that has sort of been undone. He's had clones that have replaced him, and he's taken them back. But this is sort of during an era where the Spider-Man comics were sort of rebooted and sort of cleaned up and just sort of simplified and said, like, let's get back to Spider-Man, single dude in the city, dealing with all his problems. And it was done as a weekly comic that came out three times a month. So just just a little hair less than every week. Mm-hmm. And uh, had like rotating writers and artists. Uh, Dan Slott started during this time and it would later become the only writer of Spider-Man. Okay. But Mark Wade sort of came in after that all started and started 
did a handful of arcs. Okay. Mark Wade, uh, prior to this podcast, was a very popular, talented writer. And mm-hmm. so that's very exciting. And he did this two-issue arc. This amazing two-issue arc. This, this story is great. Yeah, um, and it's another one that sort of feels, other than a couple supporting cast things, sort of disconnected from any any bigger story. It feels very self-contained, like a little isolated challenge, like a little Spidey short story nestled among the ongoing Spidey novel. Yeah. Uh, man, the art is so good. Marcus Martin is a phenomenal artist. If you haven't read his work with Brian Vaughn, Private Eye, or Barrier, you're... I don't know why you haven't done that. Uh, those two comics it. are uh, great written. Brian Vaughn's a great writer and they're beautifully drawn by Marcos Martin. Uh, anything Marcos Martin draws is worth looking at. And it's funny looking at this issue right after the juggernaut one, because now we're also seeing such advances like in the technology of what comics can do art wise. Like the colors are so much more uh, vibrant and subtle. Yeah. And that's what I was sort of saying. This is digitally colored at this point and they can do a lot more and it looks great. It just looks modern, and it, it, there's something beautiful about that old style art that I grew up with. But this is undeniably an amazingly great looking comic. Yeah, and I'm sure this is a lot because of Marcos's ability as an illustrator. But it's also just like a lot more information is communicated in every picture. Like there's just there's way more being told with the images. And Marcos is just great at like facial feet, like uh, acting. Basically, the actor's faces just act so much, and there's so little details of how he sits and how he stands that are just so great. Like even this uh, first panel is Spider-Man in the rain under a web umbrella eating Chinese food. And there's so much going on. Just like every raindrop you can see hitting the umbrella. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, I mean, it just looks beautiful. So the the basic story here, I'll just say, is that Peter Parker, the, the title of this is Unscheduled Stop. I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> but the, the story is that Peter is, it's raining out and Peter Parker's in a hurry. So he last minute gets a subway ride, but he, it ends and he thinks he's lucky because, oh good, the subway ride will help me not be late. It's raining so hard. He can't like web sling the way he would want to. Um, that's accurate. In New York, the subway is the fastest way to go long distances. If you can catch one. Yep. And um, like you were going from like, you know, Red Hook, Brooklyn to like, Harlem or something subways are your only chance of doing that in, in, um, in less than like two hours or something. So, um, but then he ends up being on a subway with a jury that's testifying against a mob boss and there's a hit that goes out. And so the car gets trapped in a tunnel and the, the two issues is him trying to save everybody. Yep. He's in the, he's just in the, either the way you look at it is either the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time. Cause he's a hero. Uh, it should just be a normal subway ride, but instead it's uh, a subway ride where they need a hero and Spider-Man is there. Yeah, they're trapped under the East River. They're in a subway car. Uh, there happens to be a supervillain on hand. And so Spidey just is kind of like close quarters um, uh, predicament. Yeah, generally Spider-Man's at his best when he's got room to jump around and, and move. Uh, uh, underground and tunnels and subway cars, he's not at his best. Like his skills aren't being used. He's not able to use all his skills. So uh, it's also a fun challenge in that sense. Yeah, it's a really fun setup. Um, like when he catches the subway, he's like, ooh, my lucky day. And that's what I'm saying. The title of this two arc thing should be Lucky Day. Yeah, because it even starts with him getting a fortune in his fortune cookie that says, today will be your lucky day. Yeah, and then he thinks he's lucky because he finds a Metro card randomly that lets him take the subway even though he's broke. And then I think the last words in the two arc is lucky day. That's the title, Mark Wade. You blew it. <laughs> so that's all we had to say about this story. Um, that's it. Thank you so much for listening to Screw It. We're just going to talk about Spider-Man. Uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this story is great. So Spider-Man, um, because it's raining, decides to take a, uh, the subway, finds this Metro card that has just enough remaining on it for him to take a subway ride and uh, jumps on a subway. Oh, yeah. He, actually, it's he's not allowed into the subway car. Police stop him. So he gets into the next one because the subway car where all the jurors are sort of being blocked by all the cops. Right. Th- this jury is has a police escort. So he goes to the next car. Yep. But then his spidey sense alerts him that something's up. And yeah. So, yeah, he's sort of in this subway car. His uh, sort of woman is flirting with him again, yeah. seeming like lucky day. He's meeting this beautiful woman. Uh, and then his spider sense kicks off. And he sort of ignores her and walks away from her. <laughs> right. And she calls him a loser. Yep. Um, 
We got a nice, there's a nice, there's a bunch of like Spidey tropes. He's holding up a big metal thing in here, which is sort of yeah. weirdly a Spidey trope. Uh, uh, and before we even get to that, like what happens is the subway car explodes, right? Do we say that? Uh, no. There's a big explosion. That's how this sort of happens. This big explosion happens and Spider-Man had already started moving because of his spider sense. So he has time to slip on his mask. And yeah, so when people get flashlights out to see if everyone's okay, you see Spider-Man like his 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 Peter Parker clothing shredded by the explosion and his Spider-Man outfit kind of shining through. He's pulled his mask on and he's holding up. Yeah. A big metal beam keeping some people alive. People would have been crushed and he's keeping them alive. And then we kind of get into this very claustrophobic situation where it's him and the jurors and the police escort and the mob lawyer. Um, and they're all and the ceiling's about to give way. But then there's another emotional twist here. Yes. Uh, oh, actually, there's two twists. One is that the shocker is around. Yes, the shocker, sort of a, a maligned Spider-Man villain that's sort of made fun of for being lame. I like him. I, th- I don't know. His costume is very distinctive, but he's sort of treated generally as sort of a B-list Spider-Man villain, and that's probably true. Is he a Ditko villain? He is not until someone can prove otherwise. Re- right. uh, listeners, tell me why Ditko deserves credit for creating the shocker. And um, in the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon, I think Montana becomes the shocker. <laughs> so, I love it. Keep the enforcers going. That's right. <laughs> um, so the first twist is the shockers here. So not only are we trapped in a subway tunnel and there's like water flooding everywhere and things can just collapse in this tunnel. There's also this supervillain with electrical powers. So that's that's a thing. Yeah. Also, at this time, Spider-Man is uh, wanted by the police. I think I can't remember if the Spider-Man murders are still going on, but he's he's at one of his low points in trust by the cops. But the cops that are there are going to trust him because they need help. Um, and then the end of the first issue of this two part story is a big reveal. One of the jurors is J. Jonah Jameson's dad. Yeah. J. Jonah Jameson Sr. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so his one of his sort of nemeses uh, loved ones is on this car. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, just for Will to know, J. Jonah Jameson Sr. goes on to marry Aunt May. Are you kidding me? I am not joking. He's now dead. He's died since then. Uh, uh, so this character you're meeting here for the first time is dead in the current continuity okay. uh, and left Aunt May a widow for a second time. She's had a rough life. Yeah. Um. So the second issue is sort of like, all right, now Spidey has to solve this big web of problems that the first issue created. Yes. Um, we check in with a little supporting cast. We see Aunt May is worried about because she uh, worries that Peter might be on that subway car because he was supposed to come um, see her. She's right. Um, but while this is going on, Spider-Man is, yeah, in this sort of subway tunnel water just pouring on down over him because he's trying to keep... Uh, the ceiling from collapsing because the shocker sort of created an explosion last issue. He's got to keep everybody moving. Uh, and just like everyone is fighting and complaining and it's just great. It's just a lot of fun tension going on here. And Spider-Man sort of jury rigs the shocker's gauntlets into blowing a hole in the wall so they can escape. Um, yeah. And it's just a lot of like Spidey going above and beyond to save these people, right? Like, Yes. Um, there's just like a lot of, first he uses the shockers gauntlets to shock something. Yeah. Like you just said. And then, uh, I'm, cause I'm, I'm looking ahead here. Then he starts using his webbing to try to like hoist everybody up on a platform uh, to get them. And throughout my- all this, just to show how good Mark Wade is like, Spider-Man's still funny. There's like this moment where Spider-Man, after he's trying to blow in the hole and he sort of got knocked back into this rubble, uh, someone's checking on him and they go, anything broken? Can you move? And Spider-Man just says, doc, will I be able to play the violin? And the guy just turns around and goes, he's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's very funny. Like, there's still has, funny moments. His personality is in display. And the art, I mean, the art's incredible every single page. And what's re- what a fun thing about this is the lighting keeps changing. It's always very sort of dim and noirish, but like. Yeah, and so again, they, that's where the coloring just shows the range that they can do nowadays in these comics. Yeah, sometimes the palette is sort of blue when there's water around. Sometimes it's red when it's the spidey light providing when, when Spider-Man's little belt light is providing the illumination. It's all, everything's kind of red. Yes. That's really nice. Um, uh, there's this great moment. Uh, so he, Spider-Man's like lifting everybody up through by kind of tugging this webbing and he, the light kind of goes out for some reason. I forget why. Uh, I think just the battery dies in his spider light. Right. So Spider-Man is sort of pulling them up in the dark 
And uh, finally, someone finds a flashlight and turns it on. And while he was in the dark, Spider-Man was just sort of covered by rats. Ugh, yeah. There's this great moment. Spider-Man is like holding this webbing, trying to pull everybody out of this pit. He's covered by rats, but he can't knock them off because he needs both his hands to continue pulling everybody. And he's just basically like, hurry. Yeah, like rats are just swarming all over him. Just like a terrifically gross image. Uh, But an effective one. Yeah. Uh, it's just like there's a lot of little moments like that where it just seems like Spider-Man is putting up with so much to save this train full of strangers and the shocker. He's saving the shocker. Yeah, he always saves the bad guy. Um, and right before they uh, escape, he say the mob lawyer is clinging to his back. I mean, it's it's always such a thing that Spidey saves the worst people because he just saves everybody. Um, and then like he saves Jameson. He saves Jameson's dad who like sinks into the water and almost drowns. Yeah, that's right. Jameson's uh, uh, father almost dies. And it's also revealed there's like an emotional moment where uh, he, this guy reveals that he didn't actually raise J. Jonah, uh, that J. Jonah was raised by a stepfather. Um, this is his blood father. Yeah. Uh, which is probably important for past stories that are probably mentioned certain characters. There's a cool little thing that happened earlier that I that I ran by, um, which is we see that J. Jonah, J., the J. Jonah Jameson Jr., the J. Jonah Jameson that we know, yeah. is going through divorce proceedings and he looks very sad about it. And he sees the news cast um, about the jurors being trapped. And he sees just the quickest image of his dad amongst the photo of the people who are trapped. And he just bolts off, runs to the scene. Like he recognizes that his dad is there. Yes. Um, it's a great moment at the end too where Spider-Man sees J. Jonah Jameson and starts calling him Junior. Uh, yeah. Calling him J.J.J.J. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He says junior so many times. Hey, junior, 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 junior. Yeah, he's like, uh, Jonah's mad at him and he goes, can the vitriol junior. I've been waiting for years to say this. Ready? You, sir, owe me one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then the senior, the senior JJJ runs away. Yeah. He doesn't want to talk to his son. Like they're, they're estranged. And so they're sort of avoiding each other. And then the final panel of the comic is uh, our JJJ just looking very sad in the rain. He probably came here to talk to his dad. Yeah, they do. They do get reunited and it's really nice. And then, you know, of course his dad dies and he blames Spider-Man. Um, <laughs> and, and the last panel, as Will said, has the caption, I guess you could call that a lucky day. The true title of this story. Uh, yeah. Once you said that should be the title, I was like, oh yeah, that would be a great title. And it feels like it is the title other than that. It's very clearly called unscheduled stop in both issues. Um. This this story is kind of like it feels like a 1970s action movie to me, like either the Poseidon Adventure, which is like a ship is sinking and a little band of people have to try to escape before it sinks or the ticking of Pelham one, two, three. I mean, those are two phenomenal films. Yeah. And watch the original taking of Pelham, not the the remake. Yep. And the original Poseidon, not the sequel. Or maybe maybe there was a remake of that. Also, both. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. The originals of both those movies are, I think classics for a reason and uh taking a pal one two three is like a subway car is held hostage and so it's like a little band of people are trapped together in a new york subway car underground um, i mean i always think when i'm on subways not always but often when i'm sitting on subways like what would happen if like you're trapped or if like this breaks down and you never get out what do you do like who steps up what you know those mm-hmm. sorts of things do cross your mind because you feel in danger on those even though you ride them constantly i've ridden more subways than I could ever calculate, but like you're underneath often rivers, you're in deep tunnels, you're far from light uh, or escape at times, you're going fast, like a, one thing can go wrong and you're sort of so, it's not like you just tripped on the street or got hit by a car, which would be terrible. You hit yeah. by a car, you're near a hospital probably. Yeah. And a subway, it's like, oh, they, they got to get me out of here first. I would have just nightmares of thought of a being run over by a train, just like being trapped on the tracks, like when one was coming. Um, yeah, there's scary places that we constantly go uh, and use all the time. I took my son on a subway for the first time ever this weekend. Oh, yeah? How did he like it? He liked it. We called it a little train. Yeah. To, um, compared to our commuter train that we sometimes take that we call a big train. Like, did it actually hold his attention? Like, did he sort of get... He loved his, it. He was yeah. just constantly telling whenever he saw other subway cars outside the subway he was on he would just be like train yeah everyone on the train (laughs) train train like yeah there's another train out there cameron uh it's fun uh he's just very excited by telling us what he sees 
I would love it if by the end of his first ride, he's a completely jaded New Yorker, you know? He's like, like get out of my way. Out of my, forget about it. Like he's just sort of, you know, only in New York or whatever. Uh, we were holding on to a, uh, whatever, a handlebar, whatever you call it, a pole to stand up. Mm-hmm. And uh, he put his hand on the, on somebody else's hand. Oh. <laughs> Real obnoxious move from an adult. Oh, very alpha. You know, he's establishing his territory. Yeah, yeah. Um, Anyway, that's two great Spider-Man stories you should look up if you've got ability to do it. They're probably on Comixology. The Juggernaut one is almost for sure on Unlimited. I, th- I think they're both on Unlimited at this point. Um, yeah. So if you're on Marvel Unlimited, they should be there. Unlimited, it definitely is on Unlimited. Juggernaut is. I've seen it. Great. Um, they're probably on Comixology. They're collected in various ways. The Juggernaut one probably is harder to find because it's older. Uh, the Mark Wade one will be in some recent trade. Not that recent, but uh, they collected that entire run of comics after sort of the relaunch. So it'll be there somewhere. Yeah. There's been so many issues of Spider-Man that it's just overwhelming to think about reading all of them, but there, there really are only a relatively small handful of like iconic arcs. Like you could read those in not too long and, and sort of weird and weirdly be caught up with like the big moments, you know? Yeah. Uh, though I will say reading these, and every time I read a Roger Stern one, I sort of want to go back and read everything he did on Spider-Man. Of course. It's a little scattershot because I think there's fill-ins and he jumped across titles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so it'd be hard to quite figure out. So yeah. maybe it'd, it'd almost be easier to read the entire Jim Shooter era, but that's a lot of comics. Yeah. Have, do you think, how many, Kevin, how much of all of Spider-Man's comics have you read? I don't know, you, 20, you've, re- you've read a lot of it. Is that all? I, I can't imagine it's... There's just so much, especially with three titles for so long. Um, I, I have the advantage that I've read a lot. The, the numbers have increased, right? So I've read a lot since this relaunch. Basically, I've read everything since they relaunched it. Which was when? Uh, shortly before this story we just read. So in the 500 range. So that's 200 issues right there. So you read 300. All the, oh you God. read all the 60s issues. Read all the 60s issues. Did you read... Did you read all of John Romita Sr.? I don't think so. I read... Uh, maybe, but you read most of it, probably. I probably read two essential volumes worth, and then mm-hmm. I sort of got bored of those. Yeah. Um, I read a big chunk when we were reading in the, the late 80s, but I'm missing a huge gap between there. Between Romita and basically this era of the Juggernaut story, there's not a lot that I've read. I've read a handful of stories here and there. The 70s stuff. Yeah, so I've missed a ton of that. I've missed most of the spectacular Spider-Man comics up until like the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 80, 90 number of the issues, not the years. Um, like by the issue 100, I was reading Spectacular. But then even that I didn't read forever. I read a lot of the early web of Spider-Man, but stopped that after a while because it got bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't, I have skimmed some of the uh, Clone Saga stuff, but I didn't read most of that. Okay. Um Maximum that, Carnage. That's, that's early nineties. Terrible. Um, you know, so I kind of would basically what happened is like after these eighties comics, these late eighties comics, I sort of fell out of Spider-Man comics cause they didn't seem as good. And I would sort of come in and out of them. Like I didn't, I haven't read most of David Michelin's run where Venom was born. I've read the two Venom arcs just because they became so famous. Yeah. I wasn't collecting it regularly. Uh, John Byrne wrote it for a while or drew it for a while. Uh, Howard Mackey had a long run of writing it, which I didn't read. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, probably more than 25%. I probably undersold myself just because there's been so many in the last like five or six years. Uh, but I has, bet it's not 50%. I think I asked you this before. Has there ever been a female writer or artist on the reg? I'm sure that like, you know, probably Marie Severn did a fill-in issue or something like that. Or, and, and Chet Shetty might've written one. Maybe I don't even know if that's or true, but like Simonson or somebody like that probably wrote some. Yeah. I don't think so. Not yeah. as a major, I bet Louise Simonson had a run somewhere there, but I don't know that. Here's who I want to write it. I want, um, Kelly Thompson to write it. Okay. The, uh, the writer from Hawkeye, Kelly Bishop yeah. Hawkeye. Yeah. I think she would, she deserves to have a 100 issue run of Spider-Man. <laughs> Kate Bishop. Yeah, right. Yes, Kate Bishop. Kelly Thompson, Kate Bishop. Yes, yes. Did I mix those names up? Uh, You said Kelly both times. Okay. Well, they should think of renaming Hawkeye. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Uh, Kelly Bishop, uh, uh, or rather Kelly Thompson, who wrote Kate Bishop. Uh, Kelly Thompson, I think, is a great writer. She's got a really funny... uh, dialogue sense. She's yes. She I, the, the, the dialogue in those Kate Bishop stories is super funny. And she, I've read a few other things by her and I see now the range she has too. 
Like the only worry I had when reading those Hawkeye stories is like, oh, does everything going to feel like this? Like the way like all Kevin Smith movies sound the same kind of. Yeah. And I don't think that's true. I think there is a Whedon-esque, Josh Whedon-esque to her witty witty dialogue. But the characters do sound distinct from each other. Uh, And I I think it definitely stands. uh, I think I think her work stands out. I think she's good at supporting casts. I think she would be a phenomenal Spider-Man writer. Let's get Annie Wu doing the pencils then. Yeah. Oh, Annie Wu is a tremendous artist. Yeah. Um, let's I, have I an all let's let's coming. have an all female team for Spidey for a while and see, and see what happens. Like, uh, let's let's you know. I mean, it's more about the individual's talent than what their gender happens to be. But I do think that since there's so much soap opera and emotional stuff where gender comes into play, it'd be nice. It'd be nice to mix it up a little bit. Yeah, there just haven't been a ton of Marvel writers and artists that are female, and that's Marvel's fault because there's a lot of talented ones that have worked in the industry and worked for Marvel, and it doesn't seem like they get the big profile books that often. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, that continues this is, to change. That's true of all Western society, Yes, uh, including Marvel. Um, I mean, but I do, you know, I love, I love Marvel comics so much and I'm sure you feel this way. And I bet you a lot of comics fans, which is like, I want my company to do right. Like I, I, I hang on to sort of certain ways that Marvel was progressive and I kind of ignore the ways they weren't like, I love that the black Panther is a Marvel character. And I love that Jack Kirby created him, you know, like I, cause I love Kirby. Um, I love that Christopher Priest got his long run on the Black Panther in the 80s, and I wish there was more like that, you know, like a black writer writing the Black Panther. Yeah, at the same time, I, I would love for Christopher Priest to have had a chance to write the Avengers. Exactly. Uh, like he doesn't I, need to just write a the, the, the black, black character. Black character. Like he yeah, did right. a short run on Justice League recently that was tremendously good. Yeah. And it's like, oh, why doesn't he always write Justice League? It would be a phenomenal exactly. book. And, yeah, that's what I mean by I kind of look away from the shortcomings because I sort of am rooting for the story of my company yeah. to be like great. But um, and uh, so, yeah, I want Marvel to always be pushing ahead that way just, just I, as a fan of the company. I mean, Miss Marvel is a good step towards that, right? Uh, again, Love it's not Ms. giving Marvel. a high-profile character, but it is like a female writer, uh, uh, Islam character written by someone who who grew up in that. Yeah, there's a new, yeah. yeah, there's a new viewpoint, and it's authentic, and it's just a great story. The the villain, the inventor, the the second big arc of Miss Marvel is awesome. Yeah, um, but there's no Ms. reason that she couldn't do Thor or of Captain course. America. Or that's like the that. that's the next step. That's the next step. Yeah. I mean, it's happening in the movies. Like, there's there's been a lot more POC. Slowly, uh, yes. Um, I mean, there still yeah. hasn't been a female-led Marvel movie. Oh, is that true? Not not with a uh, not with a main actor. The next one, Captain Marvel, will be the first female starring Marvel movie. Oh wow! I didn't. And that's out of like twenty movies. It's sort of yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yep. I mean, you know, uh, I um. I guess I just love that the Marvel movies have been good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that so was like, the, that was the first hurdle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, I mean, and it's now, not just yeah. Marvel Legends. Like Star Wars movies have the same problem. They're all directed by white men or produced by yeah. white men. And yeah, their they're least casting has gotten better. In oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot better. And it's and it's rejuvenated the franchise. Yeah. But now they need to get that same sort of viewpoints behind the camera and everywhere else. And I mean, I'm obviously I'm looking at directors more than anything else just because i'm aware of those who knows who's written or produced or edited or yeah all the other good stuff cinematographers well in terms of star wars wasn't marsha lucas george's wife the editor on the very first star wars who like kind of saved the film or was one of the major contributors to it kind of in terms of behind the scenes people yeah i know i don't know yeah (laughs) um anyway like i i I don't like being it, it can be a bit unfair uh I, I like to celebrate what, what good was done as well as demand more yeah, at the same time. I think that's important to say, like, it's, it's important to not just say like, um, you need to do more. If that's all you say, then you're sort of, uh, uh, I think you're sort of stopping the people who did do something feeling like, yeah, I guess I didn't do anything. It feels yeah. like I didn't, we didn't make anything happen. That being said, like the point that we can't think of a major female writer and or artist after, 40, 50, 60 years of Spider-Man comics yeah, is a shame. It's yeah, not like we're what, talking 20 years in. It's like, oh, no, females have written it. Well, they got to get around to doing that. Yeah, there's been thousands of issues. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but, um, well, to the future, that means there's more to be done. That's exciting. Yeah. 
Uh, all right. So next episode, we will um, come back and do a Ditko issue, right? Yeah. Issue 34. I think it's the return of the Molten Man. Uh, I think it's Craven. Craven. Oh, that's right. Craven. It was advertised at the end of the last story. Molten Man's coming back soon, though. So that's a little teaser for you guys. Yeah. And I think I'll be in New York. So it'll be one where we're in person. Oh, yeah. Funny. That'll be nice. Yeah. We can interrupt each other without Even- a lag. Even more, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening and um, check out these stories, and we'll see y'all next issue. Yeah, see you next, next week. Uh, next episode. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. We're just going to talk about Spider Man. Hey, Glamps. It's Lindsay and Angela. Welcome to the Clam Bake. You know, the opposite of a sausage fest. We explore what it means to be a feminist today. We're coming back from our post-season one hiatus with a very special live show as part of the LA Film Festival, and we'd love to see you there. It's Tuesday, September 25th at 7.30 p.m., and there are going to be trucker hats given out. Get ready to win. Woohoo! So join us in some much-needed patriarchy smashing live Tuesday, September 25th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are available online at filmindependent.org. Can't wait to see you there. Bye, Clamps. Bye. Campfire.